Visit my website, BeforeTheLightsPod.com, and click on the Vegas.com banners. You'll get the best deals in Las Vegas. Those are for shows, hotels, and vacation packages. Go to BeforeTheLightsPod.com and click on the Vegas.com banners. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark today. We're joined by a native of Fairlawn, New Jersey. He's been a basketball coach in the NCAA, the NBA, the CBA, a CBA owner. He's part of two NBA championships with the Detroit Pistons. He's an author, a podcast host for Coaching You. He's developed coaches in over 140 countries and one of the most respected figures in basketball. A gold medalist, Nine years as vice president of the NBA Coaches Association, founder and president of off-the-court speaking and consulting firm, and recently been named the chief global officer for MindView. Please welcome to the show, Coach Brendan Sir. Coach, how are you today? Good. I was I was so damn good in the intro. I was expecting applause afterwards. It was fantastic. <laughs> Maybe the best intro I ever had, Tommy. Great job. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that so much. And I, I want to say thanks to Bob Delaney for connecting us. Bob's been a recent guest on my show. And I wanted to just say, Bob, thanks a lot for uh, connecting me and Brendan. Yeah, Bob is a dear friend. We played against each other in college. And then, of course, he had many, many, many of our games in the NBA and uh and actually, we're going to do some work with MindView. So uh, we're, we're just great friends, and uh, it's, it's fun to grow old together with friends. Agree. Coach, early on, when you were in college or maybe prior to college, just go back to high school, what were your career aspirations to be? Yeah, no, I was blessed because I had – that's a great question, Tommy, because I had a great high school coach. And high school coaches and teachers for kids – are great influencers in their lives. I think um, teachers make a difference in kids' lives, you know, and, and my coach was the same. And um, my high school coach was UB Brown, if you can imagine. And uh, you know, he was, he was the best teacher in our high school. He was the best coach in our high school. And it was a very big school in Jersey. And, and UB coached, he was a defensive coordinator on a state championship football team. He was our head basketball coach, took over the worst team in the state, turned into a winning program. And then he was a baseball coach, and he was such an incredible baseball coach. He was a college baseball player. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so UB was my inspiration, even though I only had my sophomore year. He just made such an impression on me that, I wanted to be like him. And luckily we were able to stay in very close contact. He went into college coaching, but back then college coaching, I remember he, he told me, you know, talk about transparency. He leaves us as a high school teacher coach, had a job at a swimming pool in the summer and he made $15,000 back then. <laughs> and he took a job to coach at the college of William and Mary, a wonderful, beautiful school in Williamsburg, Virginia. And he, he went, he went for six thousand dollars <laughs> to become a college coach. To become a coach, and so what happened was uh, in the summer because he didn't make any money, he would come back and he would do speaking in the Pocono Mountains and do camps, and they would get a hundred dollars for an hour lecture at a camp, two hour lecture, and he would bring me around with him to demonstrate, and then 
And so we were able to stay in contact and, and just having him demonstrate for him. It was like, I was learning so much about coaching because basically he's teaching and he then did coaching clinics. He would bring me to those and fast forward when, when I, and I worked every summer rather than go get a real job. I worked as a counselor at basketball camps. My, my buddy was Mike Fratello, who is a great coach in the NBA and TV announcer. And, Mike and I, because we lived in neighboring towns, we would drive to work camps 10 weeks a summer. And that was what we did. That's how we developed as coaches. Uh, And then when I was 27 years old, UB brought me to the Atlanta Hawks to be be his assistant. I had no damn thing about the NBA. (laughs) The funny thing is that, you know, I wanted to be a high school coach. That's all I wanted to be in life was a high school coach and be like him. And my mom, when she was passing at 93, she said to me, uh, she was a teacher, history teacher. And she said to me, uh, you know, you've, you've had a nice career, but you know, you disappointed your father and I, because you never did what we sent you to college for. You were (laughs) never a high school teacher and coach. You went to this professional stuff, you know, (laughs) sorry, mom, she's looking up now and I was like, sorry, honey, you know, you know, 40 years in the NBA. I'm sorry so much, but you know, but that's what I wanted to be. So I'm a huge fan of Hubie Brown. I was a coach for a while. I can't tell you how many videotapes and seminars I've attempted, attended to his, the man is in a different level in my book. I mean, Hubie is in a whole different world. And, and 84 years old now, God bless him. And when he does a game on ESPN or ABC, it's a clinic. It's an absolute clinic. Mm-hmm. He is so incredible. And I, I just get such a kick out of it saying, I can't believe it. When, when, when Fratello and I were coaching the Hawks, Ted Turner was our great owner. And, and, and he, and Yubi said, uh, after like our first year, he says, uh, we got a problem. I said, well, Fratello says, what's the problem? He said, Ted wants me to manage the Braves. <laughs> <laughs> And so he was going to take the job as the manager of the Braves and Bowie Kuhn was the commissioner of baseball. Wouldn't let him happen. But Yumi was ready to roll due to Hawks and the Braves. Wouldn't that have been something? That would have been something. Coach, why do you think the game of basketball is so revered and loved by so many? What, what's, what draws everybody into this, this fabulous game? Well, I think, uh, you know, on the world, I traveled the world, as you know, and, and and so we know soccer slash football overseas, you know, is the game. That's their game. But basketball came quick. Uh, I think, you know, five players, you only need a ball and a hoop. Uh, is So it's easy. We don't need equipment like we do in football. Um, the game's faster than baseball. Um, we all grew up in the States playing. Uh, but I think the big thing is uh, it is quick. Uh and, you know, the kids in the urban area that maybe only have limited recreation facilities, playground with a bucket, you know, and a hoop, not even a, not even a net, you know, can play. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's been an incredible thing for so many kids. Now it's the second most popular game. And in China, it's where I go a lot. It's the most popular sport. 300 million people play basketball in China. That's, That's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. That is, it's mind blowing when you, when you hear that number come out about just population of our country. Yeah. (laughs) It's unbelievable. 
Coach, when did you know you were making an impact in the game? Oh, hell, I don't know if I am anyway. You know, I, who knows? You know, you never know. Uh, you know, you know, Isaiah Thomas is like a brother to me and, you know, has been so instrumental in my success. You know, Doc Rivers, I drafted and coached in Atlanta, you know, and, and you know, they seemed to, and Rodman, Dennis Rodman, who I love to death. And, you know, you know, I, I just, I just, you know, I think as a coach, your main objective is to love your players, to serve your players and to care about them. And so that's what I try to do. You never know, just like with your own children till later on, you know, like a lot of parents I know, their kids don't even talk to them anymore. My son and daughter who are adults, 37, 34, we talk every day. And my son, you know, he, he'll, he, he works in intensive care in Orlando in a hospital and he'll call me as he's getting off sh- shift or, you know, coming home or going to it. And every phone call we have, every time we've ever talked is I love you, dad. To me, that's the greatest impact you can make. So I, I'm one of those people that, I really believe men, coaching men, I mean, every time Isaiah Thomas, BJ Armstrong, people like that, that I coach, literally every time we get off the phone, it's, I love you. And to me, that's, that's maybe the greatest impact that I've had, you know. I would agree. I don't know if I know anything about basketball. It's not really important to me. I just, I just love that I love the people that I've had. Let's go back to 21 years old. Your assistant at the University of Detroit Mercy under Dick Vitale. <laughs> what was it like? And what was Coach Vitale like compared to what people know as him, awesome baby, and this 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 high energy commentator to what you saw at twenty one? Wow, you know, I I when he 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 hired me, I was going to be a graduate assistant you know, at a, at a college to get my master's degree. And I'm doing my student teaching in my hometown of Fairland, New Jersey. And it's April 1st. And my college doesn't, we don't graduate till mid June back then. And he gets named the head coach at university of Detroit. And the next day I worked for him at his camp for four years. So I've known him, you know, and just as a camp counselor teacher, he calls me up and he says, come down and see me. He's the assistant coach at Rutgers. He said, come down and see me. I want to talk to you. It's an hour and a half drive. I drive down and see him. And anyway, he says to me, um, back then we only had two assistant coaches in college. That's all we had. Um, and he says, uh, one guy I want to get can't come. You want to come? I don't even know where Detroit is. You know, I'm, I'm from Jersey. I don't even know where it is. I don't know anything about college coaching. I don't know how to recruit them. I haven't graduated college. I graduated in two months. I've got student teaching still to do. And I, I said, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, didn't I have, let me call my mom and dad first and ask permission <laughs> if I can go. I'm living at home for crying out loud. So I, uh, I like in 10 minutes, I just had a job. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. And literally he had not, he had been to Detroit once. I had never been. And we went out there, two guys from Jersey. It's like a bad movie almost, you know, it's like, it's like my cousin Vinny in basketball or something. And all of a sudden we go out there and Dick upon arrival makes a statement. Signing period wasn't until mid 
April back then. There's no early signing period. He makes the announcement, any high school that wants me to come and speak at their banquet, I will do for free. Well, this guy, the one thing that cat can do is speak, right? Mm-hmm. The only problem is Dick's got one eye. And and so he can't drive worth a day. So <laughs> I am now driving him all over Detroit, every which way. And I have to listen to 30, 50 speeches every night. We're doing banquets. And all I remember is a boy, a bull, a dream. You know, he said, that we, we believe in higher education at the University of Detroit. A thousand on the boards, 500 offense, 500 <laughs> defense. Yeah, I just said, uh, every night I'm listening to it. But he was, he was great. And it, it just showed you enthusiasm, you know, and he, he was just amazing. And, 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 you know, the thing is with Dick, I only was with him for a year and a half and, uh, and I, I, I left to become a top assistant back East. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're fantastic friends. He's 82 years old and he's done more. I, I love this week with Jimmy V, you know, as we're raising money, this guy has raised so much money. He's in 14 or 15 Hall of Fames, Tommy, right? Bas- broadcasting, basketball. But the biggest Hall of Fame he's going into is what he's doing for cancer and pediatric cancer. It's his big thing now, the rate, amount of money he's raised. And I'm proud to have been a itsy-bitsy piece of it, you know, by helping raise some money for him. But he's, he's just uh, he's one of my heroes because of what he's done for people. Basketball, he's a natural, you know, yeah. he's entertaining. He's really helped grow the game. But, you know, I always say you're an okay coach. You're a spectacular broadcaster, but you're a superstar human being. That's the best. That is the best. Coach, moving forward, you t- had talked about it when you were with the Hawks. What was it like coaching someone that was as powerful as Dominique Wilkins? I was good. I was in charge of all of his dunks. No, he, <laughs> you did a great job then coach. That's when I could really coach. He was so amazing. I, you know, Dominique and, and Dominique was, you know, it, it reminded me that was when Michael Jackson was, you know, like a superstar, him and Jordan were coming in the league at, at the same time. And I'll tell you what, Jordan and Dominique, when they're coming, when they're in the league early in their career, it, every night they were they were one A and one B as far as entertainment. I mean, there was not D- Michael up here and Dominic. It was right there, both of them. They would put on shows like you can't believe mm-hmm. he did dunks in games. I mean, that we never saw ever in practice. You know, he just was one of those people. But I, I always say he was an entertainer because, and the, there's no one I've ever seen that could when he went on the road he would put on a show like they've never seen. And I, and I love that about guys like him and Michael that they were like singers. They're like entertainers. So when they do the concert, when they would go to an arena, college kids, sometimes they're intimidated. These guys, LeBron, Michael, Kobe, they just perform. And, and I was always amazed by that, but he was a great competitor. He's terrific person. And ironically, I got to coach his other two brothers also in the pros. How crazy is that? Well, not uh, his other brother, Gerald, I coached. And then his Gerald's son, Damien, I've also had. I mean, that's like three generations. So that's it, pretty cool. Kind of cool. 
Yeah. Coach, how did you get connected with Coach Daly and then get go to the Pistons? When I was at, I was the first year we of five star basketball camp, which before AAU basketball basketball camps were where kids were seen, um, and summer leagues, and UB Brown took 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 us to five star basketball camp, which was later became the best camp in the country. And back then, the first year ever, we had forty eight campers just starting out, and they brought five guys from Fairlawn High School to be part of forty eight. And as we go there, I, I often laugh at this. And I, we had four lecturers that week that came in to lecture to the campers. One was the great Bob Knight, who was the head coach of U.S. Military Academy. The other guy was UB, who was on the staff at the camp. The other guy was the incredible Hall of Famer, George Ravling, okay, who was the assistant coach of Villanova at the time. And then this other guy is the assistant coach at Duke University, Chuck Daly. So at literally age 15 is the, my first exposure to him. And then we had a fantastic summer league in North Jersey that we had a really good high schools come and play in. So all these co- college coaches would come and see it. So I get to meet those guys when I was a high school. So raveling Chuck Daly, I get to know these guys, you know, when I was a high school kid. And literally, then I get into the pros, and I remember I'd moved from the coaching to the front office with the Hawks. I'm going to be the general manager of the Hawks, and it's just prior to Christmas, and I happen to go and see a game that Chuck's, the Pistons are playing in the Madison Square Garden, and Chuck says, I need to talk to you next week. Okay, fine. And uh, so literally on January one. I'm in my home in Atlanta and the phone rings. It's Chuck. And it's not like today where we had cell phones and this is 1988, technically. Well, technically, January 1 of 89. And the, and the my home phone rings. Chuck, how are we doing? Happy New Year. Good. He says, one of my assistants, Dick Versace, is becoming the head coach of the Indiana Pacers. I want you to leave the front office of the Pistons and I want you to come and be my assistant. You're too young. You're 37 to stop coaching. And in two years, and in a couple of years, you can become the head coach of the Pistons or you can the general manager, whatever you want. I said, well, that's a pretty good offer. You know? Yeah. And so I, I, you know, and so they, I said, we, you know, have the general manager, Jack McCloskey call up Stan Kasten, who's the one of the owners of the Dodgers now ask him for permission and uh, and stands from Jersey, and so when they called and said, "Hey, can we have permission to talk to Brendan?" They go, "Sure. You want me to drive him to the airport?" Typical Jersey wise guy trying to be funny, and they said, "Not necessary. We're coming to town tomorrow to play you." So, just if we have permission, that's great. And then he calls me. He says, "You're not interested, are you?" I said, "Why? Well, I'm a little intrigued. I haven't looked for a job in ten years since I've been here." And the next day, Chuck and I went to dinner for four hours in Atlanta, and it was it was a it was a life changing uh, dinner because at the end the Pistons and the and the Hawks were tremendous rivals back then, very not nice rivals either. Really didn't like each other. At the end, I and they had lost in the finals to the Lakers by two points in the game seven the year before. I said. Uh, I said to Chuck, I said, listen, I, I'm, I'm nervous that if I go to your team, your players won't like me. I don't like them right now. I said, and 
also, I said, I don't want to screw up your team. And this is the greatest answer I've ever heard, Tommy. He said, listen, I've been coaching at the time, 34 years. I've made every mistake you can make in coaching. Don't worry about making any mistakes. Let's just go and have some fun. It was so liberating. And I said, okay, tell the GM to call me tomorrow. Let's work out a deal, right? So the Pistons back at the time, they were very cheap, you know, as you know, they didn't pay their assistants much money. And they offered me 50,000 more than they had paid their assistants that went to the finals the year before. And they paid me, offered me 25 more than I was making at the time. And I said, Oh, that's, but my wife was working for AT&T in Atlanta. And I said, listen, I said, that's a great offer. I said, but I said, uh, my wife's going to have to give up her job. So I don't, I can't do it. And Jack McCossie, I, I pride myself in really being a good negotiator. I've done a lot of contracts for NBA players and coaches. And I said, um, so I, I think it's going to end right there. And Jack McCossie used the greatest technique I've ever heard. He said, Brendan, what do you want? I said, oh, my God, I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm screwed. Whatever, I know whatever I ask for, I'm getting. I'm getting. I just know it. And I threw out a very high number, and he said, not done. And I said, oh, shit. <laughs> and now I had to call my wife, who's from Atlanta, our our two kids are from Atlanta. Her mom and dad and five brothers and sisters are from Atlanta. I got to tell them we're leaving. I said, Oh boy. And so I did. And it changed my life and career and everything else. So that was, that was pretty cool. The relationship that you developed with Chuck Daly went way beyond X's and O's and basketball to the point where you wrote a book about Chuck Daly. So if you would speak about, that book and the relationship you guys really had, because it was much more than what is beyond two coaches. Yeah, he he was he was just so wise, and it was like UB Mike Fratello. They gave me my in in the NBA. They taught me everything about it: bachelor's degree, master's degree. Chuck Daly gave me my PhD in in NBA basketball. He he just put everything together. He mastered the people part of coaching. That's where he, there was no one like him. Uh, And then his X and O's were beyond brilliant. But the way he could maneuver and handle every situation, it was like he knew what the outcome was going to be beforehand. I've never seen anyone like that. And he, he just, we were just aligned. And it was, and I think, you know, I have a growth mindset, Tommy. So I'm always trying to learn and get better. And it was like I went there, and, and a lot of people, if you work with UB Brown, you'd say, don't worry, it, I know everything, Chuck. Don't worry, I, I got this. You know, It was just the opposite. I just went there as an open book and said, teach me. And then anything I could contribute, fine. But we were so aligned. And, and I think the players, and this is really important in coaching staffs in every sport, I think our players, and these were the most brilliant players I've ever been around, Isaiah Dumars, Vinnie Johnson, Lambeer is like a genius, uh, Mohorn, Sally Rodman, Mark Aguirre, these guys, they, they were masters of their craft. And these guys, they, they knew if, if, two things, they knew if you two didn't get along, which happens on a lot of coaching staffs, they knew if they couldn't get along. 
but they also knew if you guys, we had like, it was, we would be in a timeout and Isaiah could look at me, just look at me. And I could tap Chuck on the knee and Chuck would say, what do you want to add? And I would say it and Isaiah would just smile because literally he had nothing that he would ever say, uh, what are you trying to coach my team for? He was open. He, Chuck had this saying, Tommy, that I don't want you on my staff if you're not better than me. Well, that was a bunch of bullshit because this guy was a master. He was so smart. But it made you you say, basically, he wanted people around him that were really super competent. The players knew were competent and had credibility. And so that's what made us so special because back then we only had two assistants in the NBA. Now it's like there's not enough seats for guys, right? You know, you know, and so it it was really neat. But Chuck was, you know, Chuck. The most fun I had with Chuck was after a game. We we were the first team to ever have our own plane, and we would fly all over the country after a game. We would fly to the next city, fly home. Those flights home because we won almost every game. So when you're flying home, you're in a pretty good mood, and he would just talk life philosophy. It was unparalleled. I mean, it was just like, uh, you know, I'm, and, you know, and, and so after writing the book about him, you know, it took me 10 months after he passed to start writing. Cause every time I started, I cried, I couldn't, he, you know, he wouldn't let me write a book with him while he was alive. He said, no one wanted to hear anything. I think, but he, he was such a huge contribution to the game. I wanted it to all, it was all from him. It was like, him, everything he had taught me, I put out there, you know, you know, you know, you know, just Chuck Daly, you know, coaching you. It was a play on words, you know, and and that's what we tried to do. And he just was a master at even little sayings like, you know, I, you know, he, one of his favorites was, you know, you can't fool dogs, kids or NBA players. You know, they know. That's they a pretty know. good line. I don't, it's a great saying. Or, you know, you, you know, you get pissed off at your guys and, you know, after a loss and they'd say, get past mad, you know, but he had about 40, some of some odd sayings that I kept writing down over. I was with him 12 years at the end his last, the last three, you know, we, we did Detroit. We went to Jersey. We did the dream team. Then we did Orlando and, you know, and that was, that was fun. You know, when we did Orlando, because, he was 67 years old and, uh, you know, and he decided to go one more time. And, and it was, the thing is, if you ever saw us practice in Detroit, Tommy, and you walked into the palace or we didn't have a practice facility like these places do now, but if you walked into the gym or, or and you watched practice, you'd think I was the head coach. Cause he had me do all the teaching and coaching because he said, they've heard my voice too long. They need a new voice when we go to. So we did that when we went to the Nets. Uh, and then all of a sudden we go to Orlando. Now the guy's like, he's up there. He's 67, 68 years old, finishes at 69. And, you know, so we're going to practice the first year. We got Penny Hardaway and I'm ready to, you know, do my thing. All of a sudden we go into practice court. My man Chuck is coaching the team. He had become the highest paid coach in basketball, five and a half million dollars a year. Right back then, this is 1997, five million dollars. And they gave him a 
house that's probably a $5 million home in Isleworth where Shaquille and Grand Hill and all those guys live. And they, and they gave it to him. And so he goes there and he wants to prove that he's got the juice. For two years, he coached that team. I was an observer. That was the greatest I've ever seen. I mean, it, it's just, that's how good he was. He could just, and he, he didn't like say, hey, Brendan, here's what we're going to do now because they're paying me five million. No, he just walked out and he did it. And I saw what he was doing and I just slid back. It was awesome. That's awesome. Absolutely awesome. Coach, when you were with him, when the dream team, there's been a lot of speculation that the greatest game ever played was a inner squad scrimmage amongst the dream team. Did you get to see that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was the greatest game played by that team by that team, of course, because our average winning margin was 47 points a game between Tournament of Americas in Portland, the eight games and then the eight games in the Olympics, by far. And it was all, and it was the height of trash talking, you know, Michael against Magic. It was spectacular. And so, yes, that was the greatest game that team ever played. Okay. But, you know, that team, I've only started to say this recently, that team was not the best team that we ever had together. The greatest team that Chuck and I ever had was the 1990 Eastern All-Star team in Miami. The Eastern All-Stars were way better than the Dream Team. Really? It wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. I'm looking on my wall here to see if I see these boys. Um, ah, yes, it is. And we had Parrish, McHale, and Bird. And Bird could really play in the Olympics. He could. He was done. He had nothing. You know, he had no elbow problem. But Kale was unstoppable. You know, as an offensive player, and Robert Parrish was pretty damn good. Then we had four Pistons. So we had Isaiah Dumars. We had Lambeer and Rodman. So you know, we had four studs. We had Reggie Miller. You know, it was arguably one of the greatest years. We had old Charles Barkley, who was the best player in the Olympics. Not Michael it was Charles. Uh, it was just, and just in the, and we had Dominique, <laughs> you know, it was, it was like every spot. It was like, wow. And, and so that was by, I think by far the greatest team that has ever been out there. And so that I always say that and people just can't believe it, but trust me, it wasn't even close. Isn't that cool? That's pretty cool to hear that because I never would have thought that because to me, the dream team is the greatest team ever assembled. But The greatest marketed team of all time. <laughs> but, you know, Isaiah wasn't on the team. You know, no. John Stockton didn't really even play in the Olympics because he busted his Lego, you know, in Portland. So, you know, and Bird was a shell. You know, Charles Barkley was incredible. Michael was incredible. But that that team couldn't compare to this other team. Coach, what made you go from the NBA and then get involved in the CBA, become a president co-owner and get involved with Grand Rapids. Yeah. So Chuck, uh, all of a sudden we're in New Jersey and we're, we're doing pretty good. And all of a sudden he calls me up one day and he says, um, he was upset at something. And, uh, he said, I quit. I said, you what? He said, I quit. I said, well, can't we talk about this? And, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, you know, maybe I'm, not right. Yeah. Let's go get a cup I'm of coffee. The highest paid assistant in the NBA. He's the highest paid head coach. 
and the money ain't like it is now. And, and, and so he says, no, I don't need this. Yeah, you don't, but I do. But, you know, and, and so he, he quits. And I, I said, man. And so I, I needed to do something. And the, and the timing was such that it was, you know, it was, you know, the staffs were much smaller, but there really weren't jobs, there were many jobs. And so I'm living in Detroit, even though I'm coaching in New Jersey. And I, I decided to, uh, a friend of mine had a CBA team in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is one of the great cities in America, two, and a, two hours from, you know, where we lived in, uh, you know, where the Palace of Auburn Hills was, you know, two, two and a half hours from Detroit, but two hours from my house in Rochester Hills. And so I went up there and I took a job for $60,000, five grand a month, I remember. And uh, the season was only four months, but they made me get paid over 12, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and uh, hoping that probably I wouldn't be back. So they only had to pay me 20 grand right over four months. But anyway, I loved it because it was uh, it was prior to the G League, of course, and the NBA was very supportive of it. And we really we really sent players up to the NBA. It was a league of dreams. And I loved the idea of helping kids reach their dream. And so I had, I decided that if I wanted, and, I, and I'd been in the NBA for 15 years, but I had never been a head coach. So I decided I want to see if what I've learned will work. I had no assistant coach. <laughs> and I go and I, I said, I'm going to pick an incredibly young team. And I had the youngest team. We only had 10 players on our roster. And I took nine, eight guys that were, first or second year players. And, and my, my first year players were pretty cool guys. Melvin Booker, Devin Booker's, Booker's daddy. Okay. Who played over in Europe, in Italy for 13 years, spectacular point guard. Uh, Matt Maloney, who played at Penn, uh, whose daddy was uh, John Cheney's longtime assistant at Temple, Jim Maloney, uh, who ended up going and starting with the Houston Rockets for two straight years when they were really good with Barkley and those guys uh, and Drexler. And then I, I took a uh, Ray Jackson from the fab five. Mm. So I had, a, and I took this kid out of Purdue by the name of Conzo Martin, the head coach of Missouri now. So I had all these babies and you know what? They were so coachable. They were phenomenal. And they, they allowed me to coach them. And, and you know, to, the coolest thing is, to this day, we're friends. That's that's the coolest thing. Yeah, and and it was wonderful to watch them, and and several of them had gone into coaching. That's even more amazing, you know. I paid them eight hundred dollars a week. You know, that's what we paid back then. Conzo <laughs> Martin getting eight hundred dollars a week, man. It, you know, it's just amazing. And so that was what happened. But I liked the team so much. The team, the people that owned the team, couldn't afford it the following year. And we were trying to get the divorce family who was from Grand Rapids that owned the magic to buy it. And the NBA wouldn't allow any NBA owner to own a minor league team. How about that? So a local business guy and I bought the team and I loved it. I was a managing partner and I became the president coach and general manager. And I like, three times my salary <laughs> and we moved into an arena, a, a 14,500 seat arena. And I had 
two billionaire, three billionaires, the Boss family, the uh, the Van Eck, Van Andel family that the arena is named after, and one other guy in town, billionaires that were my limited partners. Okay, I had no money in the deal. It was the greatest business deal I've ever done. <laughs> the biggest mistake I ever made was going back to the NBA because I had a blast. We had great crowds, made a lot of money, and it was fun. That, and that, then, that's a hell of a deal. Oh man, it was so much fun, you know, and and it was cool because it was for for a year. I, I probably shouldn't say this, but Rich is dead. Rich Rich DeVos, one of the great greatest guys of all time, owner of the Magic. But for a year, I lived. They have a hotel in Grand Rapids called the Amway Plaza, that is a replica of the Plaza in New York. It's gorgeous, and I lived in that hotel in a suite for a year. And the family didn't know I lived there. <laughs> <laughs> That's even a better deal, coach. It was the greatest deal of all time. And I, I, I just loved it. It was like, you know, uh, one time I stayed in, a, they have a president's suite because they're big Republican donors, uh, Betsy DeVos. And, and, and so I lived in where Gerald Ford uh, Ronald Reagan, where they would stay, where they would come to town. I mean, it was monstrous sweet. It was great. It was, and I, I loved it. But what a town, great people. And, I, and then my buddy Isaiah Thomas called me and said, I need you in Toronto. And I said, no, no. I, I, after the year, let's talk. No, I need you. I said, Isaiah, I own this team. I can't. And he called my wife. And talked her into it. She said, you got to be in Toronto on Sunday. You know, I didn't want you there. Yeah, honey, uh, I own the team. Yeah. So, but, you know, it's all about relationships, you know, right. and, 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 and that was good, but I, I love that experience. I did. Coach, what's diff more difficult developing a player's skill set or developing their knowledge of the game? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, if they're a good player, you know, you know, the problem is the guys that have knowledge of the game usually aren't very good players. But the ones that, if they're really, really talented, like Isaiah, and then they have a genius IQ, basketball, then it's great, you know. Uh, so at the very highest level, I, I almost think it's it's also innate. Uh, the coaching part of it, you, at the NBA level, we just contribute a little bit to it. These guys are so good. LeBron James is an absolute genius, genius beyond genius. And he just has mastered this, his craft. And I love that. That's what you do. He's professional basketball player, but he's a professional at everything he does. So he's got the high IQ. He plays like it. He's a winner. He's a leader, you know, that's the whole thing. Can can we get guys that when you're supposed to show up, they show up. They're they have humility enough to bring everyone along with them, um, and that, and that I admire those guys. I don't admire the guys when we have a new coaching staff and we don't show up when you're supposed to the first day of camp and you make forty plus million dollars. The most Isaiah ever made was one point two million. And there's not a point guard in the game as good as him now. Right. So that that's what pisses me off is that when I see guys that don't have that professionalism to their craft that some of these guys do. But and that's why I don't do generation comparisons like, hey, Michael's better than this. 
Michael was the best when we played. LeBron's the best now. Kobe was really, really sensational for a period, you know, and, and Grand Hill was spectacular, you know, but I don't believe it. You don't compare this guy to that guy. It's not fair, you know, at all. But I love the guys that are super professional and that really are open-minded and want to get better and want to win. Winning is the top thing of being a professional. That's what separates you, you know, is that you won at a very high level. My opinion, that's just me. How did coaching you come about? And when did you go from the coaching you that coaches teaches coaches to the coaching you podcast? Yeah. You know, 12, 12 plus years ago, Kevin Eastman was my partner. Kevin, uh, Kevin and I were friends and we decided we're talking and said, you know what? College coaches need, they work so hard at recruiting and stuff like that. There's no development for them. There's no path for them to get better. And so we said, let's see if we can put on an event for a day and a half before they start recruiting in July that we can give them everything that we know that might help someone. That was, that was our purpose. We did it in Las Vegas at the Palm hotel. Kevin and I were the only speakers. Kevin's a brilliant speaker, great, great coach. And we, we did it. We had 190 people. We were stunned. And afterwards I said, Kevin, that was amazing. He said, that was great. I said, what do we do next year? Cause we gave him everything we knew. We're done. We're, it. We're tapped out. And he said, Oh geez, what do we do? And that, that's when we decided to start bringing in other people to speak. And then what we found is that our, what we wanted to do with our purpose was so pure of just trying to help people grow and get better that we found out that if I asked Doc Rivers, the coach of the Celtics, to come, if I asked Lawrence Frank, the head coach of the Nets, to come, you know, if I asked Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy, to come, they're all showing up, and so it was neat. And then, so that was that was why. And then, probably as we, and, and it just got it got so big, I wanted to keep expanding it because there was a need for it everywhere. We expanded. We did a couple of sites. We, they wanted us in Europe, Australia, China. Kevin now had a, he's got now a full time job. He's with Doc Rivers with the Celtics. He's saying, "Man, I don't have time. I've got a couple of weeks off a year. I'm not going around the world to do these things." And so, uh, so then I just started to do some podcasts about I don't know five six years ago. Just you know, just by accident, kind of. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. And just kind of did them. And uh, they were really well received. We had good guests. Um, and it was just, and it was something we just gave away for free. And, and that was, that was, that was the intent. Um, tomorrow, <laughs> I'm going to record my 200th episode. It's a great podcast. And I took a whole year and a half off when I was coaching at LSU because I didn't want them to think that I was you know, more concerned about doing something else. So I, I, you know, I really like it because I didn't know Tommy till two years ago that anyone outside the United States heard it. <laughs> I, I just thought, you know, I said, hey, all, all these people, all these coaches in the U.S. are listening to it. They seem to like it, you know. And then I found out there were, at the time, all of a sudden there were, you know, 
80 countries. Now it's like 140 countries. And people, it was like, are you kidding me? And so that's been the biggest thrill that, you know, that, you know, your podcast can be heard by everyone. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's I mean, really that is, cool. you know, how does it do it? I don't know, but you know, that's not my job, but I just, you know, all of a sudden I'll get a, a text or a, an email from a guy coaching in Belgium that says, Hey, I'm, a, I'm an American coaching a professional team here. My wife is, I can't mention his name, but she's one of the best tennis players in the world. <laughs> okay. And he says, I have to drive an hour to coach my team every day. And I listen to your podcast. Can you do more? So I have more to listen to, you know, and I love that. I have other college head coaches that'll say, Hey, I work out for 45 minutes every day. Can you make sure all your podcasts are at least 45 minutes? So, (laughs) you know, like I feel like a mirror or something like one of those training sessions or something, but I'm, I love it. Uh, You know, I try to give variety guests. As you know, it's a great way to communicate and, uh, you know, and if it helps someone, you know, it, it, it's really fun. And and, that, and that's why I like to have some authors sometimes like you. I think a diverse audience, a diverse group of speakers is really helpful. You know, it's not it's just not about men or women coaches. It's about all other people, because some of the other people add more value than coaches. Right. Sometimes. True. And I'm going to put a link to all my listeners out there in the show notes so you can check out the Coaching You podcast before, oh, I, absolutely. Before I let you go, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about. You're the only professional coach to be certified as a master strengths coach by the Gallup organization. Yep. And one of only five people in the world who share that distinction. So that's a hell of an honor. What does that mean to you, Brendan? Well, what happened was, uh, you know, you know, I've always had a side hustle, you know, even as an NBA coach, you know, cause you never know what's going to happen. You never know when Chuck was going to quit. And so <laughs> years ago, uh, when I was living in Orlando, um, my son was a golfer in high school and he, his, uh, one of his teammates, his daddy was the CEO of, uh, Marriott and Rich Carlton timeshares and, uh, great guy. And one day he comes up to me when the kids are playing a match. I have no idea what he does, who he is. And he says, I'm fascinated by, you know, and I've already, you know, and I've already been there coaching the magic and stuff. So this is like in the early 2000s. He says, fascinated by, you know, your what you do. He said, I have this idea that I'd like to have you teach all my executives around the world how to coach their people. He said, right now, all we do is tell them what to do, boss them around, yell and scream. But I think they need to learn how to coach them. I, I, th- I thought it was one of the most incredible things. I was taken back by it. I was intrigued by it. We met the next week. And uh, one of the things I found out, the Marriott organization, uh, what they call Vacation Club, we had 12,000 uh, associates or employees. And what we found out was that they used Gallup Strength Finder, and Strength Finder is one of these incredible things that uh, assesses your talent in a sequence of what your everyone has thirty four ta- strengths, but the order in which they are can determine how effective you can be. And so they had this for every one of their employees, from housekeeping to CEO to project director in Europe to someone that's running a restaurant 
in Orlando. So they, everyone knew their strengths. And so they made me go through training to learn mine. And then I got, I, I saw it and I saw the value in it. And right away I said, my God, this is going to make me a better coach. Now I, I was unconsciously competent for years as most coaches are. I had no idea what the hell I was doing, but it kind of worked out. And now all of a sudden I became consciously competent. Now all of a sudden I now knew why I was doing different things. So I got so intrigued by this that they brought me to Omaha, Nebraska, to the Gallup headquarters. And I went through training and I, I became a master straight. They never let outsiders do it. And they let me come through and I'm the only professional coach that's ever done it. And I, and I absolutely use it to this day. And it's really helpful. You know, my, my number one strength is I'm a maximizer. I like to take things that are good and make them great. Okay. And, and, and you have to own your strengths, Tommy, you know, you just can't say, Oh, this is what I am. You, you know, they literally say to you, is this who you are? And I say, yeah, my second one was individualization. Individualization is like, like literally you and I can talk like we did last week. And, and like in about 15 minutes, I almost do an MRI on you. I can tell you, you know, what you're like. My wife used to say when we first dated, oh, you judge people too quickly. I didn't know that that's a talent of individualization. Then I'm an arranger. I can do this. I can do that. I can, and I can sequence them like you are. Uh, then I'm strategic, you know, which obviously helped in coaching and stuff helps a lot now. And then positivity was my fifth uh, thing. But I told the people that, so they said your top five uh, strengths will determine that's how you work. And they put the top five strengths at everyone in Marriott. And I told them after like, working, I said, you know what you need? I told the people at Gallup, like, um, I said, we need to expand this. It's your top 10. And like they're going, you, you just, you know, you, what do you know? <laughs> and it turned out it is the top 10 because literally I can take any one of my top 10 strengths and I can flip it to number one. So woo is one of my yeah. strengths, which is winning others over. So when I want to, I can turn it on. So it's fabulous. I love it. and fits in beautifully with what I'm doing now with my view. It's fantastic. Coach, thanks for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're a busy man and coming on my show and talking stories and telling about your life. Uh, I'm honored. And, uh, and you know, I never let another Jersey guy like Delaney up me. So I, I hope it was at least close to him. <laughs> I won't say who won. I'll leave that up to oh, you guys. Won. I know he won. You know, he, if not, he'll just blow it, call it technical on me. But <laughs> no, Bob's the best. Absolutely best. Thanks, Coach. For show notes, go to my website, BeforeTheLightsPod.com. Click on the episode page there. If you'd like to contact me, send me an email, BeforeTheLightsPod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, BeforeTheLightsPodcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin. <laughs>